This is the Living Fearless Today podcast, a show that helps men like you and me who are struggling to get unstuck and overcome fear to live confidently and courageously. I'm your host and transformation coach, Mike Forrester, helping you create the change you want now. Join me as I interview men who've conquered their challenges and soared to success as they spill their secrets on how they live fearless today. Well, hello and welcome back, my friend. Man, this week, this is going to be a fun one. So just got done spending an amazing week with Jerry Dugan at uh, Podcast Movement. So let's see, this is August that we spent our time together. Oh my gosh, Jerry is a phenomenal guy, huge heart, and just is like encouraging, uplifting, and equipping. So I'm super pumped for this conversation with Jerry. and you know, selfishly, I get to hang out with him here with you. So I'm excited for that as well. Uh, Jerry is a podcast host. He's um, uh, the host of Beyond the Rut. He's also helping uh, companies like in their, their leadership, their management to up level their game to like, make it a place that you and I would want to work. And I think that's the key thing, you know, it's like, how many jobs have we had where it's like, gosh, I can hardly wait to go home. Hey, it's Friday. Oh, it's Monday. Jerry is working to transform that kind of culture and make it a place where it's like a new family, right? A place where we can grow and are happy to work alongside of each other. So he is an amazing person. And, uh, if you're looking at it on YouTube, you'll see that Jerry shirt says vision and he has a large vision. So, uh, we're going to get into that one. Jerry, how are you doing today? My friend? Oh man, Mike, I am doing great. So we're not going to be picking on John Shuckman on this one. This is serious. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll probably pick on John a little more outside of in other groups that we're in. So yes. <laughs> Sorry. I had to get a shout out to John. That was the, that was the best way I could do it. Oh, dude, John, John was a great guest as well. I mean, it's, it's uh, one of those when you're with your friends, it's like there's a different conversation that's available. And yeah. John talked about his, his struggles at first when he was, you know, starting out as a, a realtor and going like, Oh my gosh, is this what I'm supposed to do? Like, and now he's crushing it. Oh my gosh. So it just continues to put out that, that ability that we are not stuck, you know, like we're not in that rut that we are today. That's not where we have to be in 30, 60, 90 days or even a year out. So yeah, we, we can harass John. He's not here, awesome. but he deserves it. <laughs> so how are you doing today? My friend, you doing great? Oh man, I'm doing great. Uh, before we hit record, I'd shared with you that, uh now my wife gave me the okay for this probably two months ago, but I finally did it yesterday. I pulled the trigger on replacing my old laptop with a new MacBook Air. Uh, my son kind of helped me pick out because it was between that and the Pro. So really, for the last twenty four hours, I've been playing with a new toy that has just sped up all my processes, all my workflows, and I'm I'm so excited uh, just because of the new gadgets and. Um, you know, hopefully Skynet, my old laptop doesn't get mad. Um, it should be fine. Uh, who names their computer Skynet? I don't know. 
me? Well, wait, wait, wait. I'm like, no, we don't have to wonder you. So as AI isn't developing, if we end up with Skynet having a problem, we're going to come back to you, Jerry, and go, yes. this is ground zero. This is where <laughs> the problem developed. If it happens, I'll be impressed because that laptop needed to be replaced and it just didn't have the power to do what I needed to do anymore. Um, so, yeah, who would have thought? Terminator, the whole franchise is based off a podcaster's laptop that was just mad it got replaced. That would be a cool sequel. Anyway, okay. Sorry, I'm back. It, it could happen, man. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, let's jump into it. What does life look like for you on the professional side? Oh, man. Uh, it's exciting because I'm in startup land right now. Uh, I've got a company I started called BTR Impact that originally, when I thought of this idea, it was the the business arm of Beyond the Rut, the podcast that mm. I've had for a little over eight years now. But because I left my job in October of 2022, it quickly also became my leadership development business where I do keynote speaking and workshops around uh, servant leadership using the tent framework that I've come up with uh, over the past few months. So if leaders did these four things, they would create this environment that people would feel safe. They'd you know, feel engaged and be less likely to leave their organizations, which will help the companies win. It'll help the individuals win. And uh, the leaders caught in the middle, they'll stop pulling their hair out and they'll love what they're doing. They'll be able to go home, have peace of mind, all those things. And, uh, and some people ask, like, how does that tie into your podcast? Well, a lot of us tend to feel stuck in a rut because of what's going on at work. You know, what we really want is more time at home with our, our families, with our spouse, with our children, uh, more time to do our personal pursuits. Maybe there's a, a book we want to write or a sculpture we want to create, whatever it is. But we are so stressed out because of what's going on at work that we just don't have the mental or emotional or physical energy to do the things we really want to do that are important to us. So, if I could help you on the professional side and just treat your team that one degree better than your competition, your people stay, they're more engaged, they're excited, they're growing with the skills that I teach in my workshops, then you're able to go home, not just on time, but sometimes even earlier, guilt-free, knowing that you've balanced things out at work. So that's that's what's going on professionally. It's now it's been about 10 months in and I'm starting to see the momentum pick up. So the the paid speaking gigs are now showing up. So the first few months we just lived off of savings. Uh but now it's like, hey, we got revenue coming in and we can bring this much off to offset what we're spending and wow, that feels good. <laughs> um and then you and I, we met somebody uh, more recently, Chris Williams from uh, Group Coach Nation. And golly, I mean, a, an hour and a half to two hour conversation with that guy at Podcast Movement. And uh, he's he's got that, you know, they always say like the, the thing that separates water from boiling is like one degree. Like you get nothing, nothing, nothing. And then one degree higher, boom, boiling. And that's kind of what I felt like when I met Chris and had conversations with him. It's like, he's got that one degree that's going to unlock everything else. And I'm excited. So business-wise, yeah. I'm excited. Looks like I may not have to go back to corporate life after all. Uh, I wasn't ready to go back into the matrix. Uh, however, if I have to, I know I can. I just don't feel ready to go there yet. Yeah. Well, the work that you're doing, I mean, it's one of those, I can't tell you how many times it's been 
hey, so-and-so moved on. They took this knowledge with them. Mm-hmm. To be able to have a consistent group that wants to work together and to see the place elevated, dude, that I'm like, Jerry, where have you been? Like, I needed you, like, <laughs> working it in where I was before, you know? Yeah. So. And that's something, like, civilian businesses have to struggle with that the military often doesn't. You know, the military mm-hmm. is so steeped in its traditions, its policies, how it does what it does, that not saying that we're all replaceable, but, I mean, in combat, you got to be replaceable. You got to make sure that as a leader, your team can pick up without you uh, and not just on the skill side and the mission side, but morale wise that they can pick themselves back up with that resiliency and, and push forward. And when you get in the civilian side, you, you have somebody who's been there for 20 years and they decide to retire or somebody decides to lay them off uh, or they do something to get them fired. And all of a sudden you've lost all that institutional historical knowledge and you essentially got to start all over again. And that just hurts. Or, you know, uh, your star player who's been there eight years decides, Hey, I'm going to go somewhere else where I can get a 50% raise on what I'm getting now and actually do just my job and not administrative work on top of that. Like I, I do less work, get paid more for it. I'm respected as a professional and they'll go. If, if you don't treat them with those growth opportunities, make them feel cared for, they will go somewhere where they do get that. Um, and it, it's just, it is how it is. <laughs> yeah. It's, it carries a weight of like discouragement. I mean, because the rest of the team is like, how are we going to measure up? You know, how are we going to replace? And you and I both know. But it's like when you bring in a replacement, it takes time to bring them up to speed. Yeah. Much less you're lucky if you ever get them to replace that person because it's like, you know, I've stepped into roles where it's like I'm gifted in what I'm gifted in, but I'm not a clone of who I replaced or, you know, anything like that. So yeah. it's it's super challenging. Well, let's. Yeah. Let's transition onto the other side. Talk about what does personal life look like for you? Also good. <laughs> uh, my wife and I have been empty nesters now for almost two years. Uh, so I moved up to Dallas for a job. Uh, I was commuting back and forth between Corpus Christi and Dallas because we promised my daughter she can graduate from her high school. Well, she graduated. She went off to college and live moved right up here and i was worried like she wasn't going to adjust very well but within a few weeks she's like kids what kids no, okay <laughs> no, she was not like that guys it, kids if you're listening that's a joke <laughs> <laughs> ignore the fact we replaced you with three cats um <laughs> just 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 move along guys keep, keep, keep going uh but anyway um why it's so good is that you know my wife not only are she and I close, she was really close to our kids and it did kind of make her sad at times that when she wanted to hang out with our daughter or hang out with our son, um, she just couldn't jump in the car and go to them or them jump in their car and come to us. Like they could, but it's like six hours instead of 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, so more recently, like about a year ago, our daughter moved up here. She, she was a half mile down the road, but, um, now she made a best friend and the two of them decided to get another apartment six miles down the road. Like, Oh, okay. Now we got to deal with traffic. I don't know. 
<laughs> six uh, miles, six hours. That's right. all the same, right? Yeah, it's it, it in Dallas traffic. Yeah, it can feel yeah. that way. But I mean, if you know the back roads, it's not that big of a deal. Um, and our son moved up here just a couple of months ago. And so he's just a few buildings over from us in the same apartment complex. Uh, so for my wife and my son, they've kind of reestablished that tradition where uh, Jacob would come over like every Monday and have lunch with her and they would just shoot the breeze um, for a couple hours before he had to go off to work and to see them have that back. It's like, you know, that, that was part of their tradition, part of their routine. And, you know, Jacob's doing his own thing. He's doing all, everything's on his own, but the two of them are so connected and it's happy. You know, I'm just happy to see that. And then our daughter is, you know, spreading her wings. She's starting to fly, but she's not so far away that we can't, you know, rush her and give her a hug and hang out with her and uh, have a bunch of laughs. So uh, that's going well. And then uh, I've been working with a fitness coach for the past month and a half, almost two months. Uh, I've lost 10 pounds so far and I'm eating healthier. I can go up three flights of stairs and not be winded. Uh, I just went rucking with uh, a friend of mine this morning. Uh, we went three miles at a 17 minute mile pace and I was still energetic for the rest of the day. Um, I did take a nap at two o'clock, but that's because it was nap time. It was siesta time. It, it's Labor Day when we're recording this. And uh, anyway, uh, so physically getting into shape, uh, emotionally, we got the whole family, uh, the whole gang's here in the same six mile radius. And um, yeah, it's just life is good. You know, that's awesome. I love it. Yeah, having the kids nearby where you can still have that interaction, but yet they can also have their in independence. Dude, that's, that's amazing. I love it. And you know, what I'm doing right now, business wise is in alignment with what I've always wanted to do with my life. So that's that other piece. It's like all coming together. So there you go. <laughs> you're, you're taking that risk and investing yes. in yourself, which yes. is, is something that many of us don't see the value in. So I love watching and, and, you know, being able to cheer you on and, and say like, dude, you got it. This is crushing it. So, um, yeah. And I think that's what we also miss is that relationship in that community, which, you know, you and I have both been able to find as we've hit that point of being open to having dialogue and sharing and going, Hey, this is what I need. And yes, I do value my dreams. Um, whereas before it may have been like, nah, you know, I know like for myself and many other men, it's like, I just didn't see that it was feasible or that I was worthy of stepping into that, of, of having it. Like I would have looked at you, Jerry and gone, <laughs> yep, Jerry deserves it. He's going to get it. Cool. And would have looked at myself like, meh, you don't matter. This is, oh, this man. is what the, what stacks up, you know, according to your past kind of thing. So, yeah. And it was like, just looking at the clock thinking, man, I'm in my forties now. You know, like I'm not getting younger. Um, you know, my parents who used to be in their forties are now in their sixties and seventies. Uh, actually I think they're both I'll have to do the math on it. They might both be in their seventies now. Oh man. And so it's just like thinking about that in the cycle of life, the circle of life. And, um, I had a guest on my show a few months back, Brian Crum, who, uh, is an administrator for a hospice and, one of the things he shared with me during that conversation was that, you know, being at the bedside of people while they're in their final stages of life, uh, one thing that he, he noticed was that people never really said, man, 
I really wish I worked one more weekend at the office or I, I wish I got to inbox zero one more day. No, they'd rather have wished, um, they, they wish for things like, I wish my family was still here. I wish, uh, my grandkids were around me or great grandkids or just my own children. I wish I spent more time with my family. I wish I made the first marriage work, you know, whatever it is, like those are the regrets that he would hear at the bedside and it would just break his heart. And, uh, and it would even be things like, I wish I wrote that novel. I wish I wrote that song. I wish I wrote that screenplay. Who cares if it didn't make it? At least I would have known I gave it a shot. You know, those kinds of stories at the end of life. And uh, it, it was kind of a wake-up call to me. And, uh, you know, even though at work I had a trigger point that said, that's it, I'm done, I'm out of here. Uh, the, the storm was already brewing and forming uh, ever since that conversation with Brian because it was just sort of like, Every week that went by, every month that went by, every project that got done to start a new project, I was like, how do I get my team to replace me? <laughs> like, I'm ready. How do I, how do I prepare my team to take my place? And I was working on that. And then somebody came along and ruined all of it. Uh, and I normally don't blame other people, but you know, without dropping names or anything, but yeah, the person who was going to replace me left. And then the next person in line was like, I'm out too. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not sticking around to answer the awkward question of why is it that you got like 75 to hundred percent vacancy in your, your team in just six months. And, you know, and, and I knew it wasn't my fault. It wasn't anything I had, you know, I, I talked with all my team, like I was doing uh, check-in sessions with them rounding. Uh, so I already knew what was going on. And then when it actually happened, the, the trigger event, um, I was also doing kind of exit interviews with them, like just to reassure them, like, I just need to know what could I have done differently? They're like, Oh no, hundred percent. It was never you. Um, it was somebody else. And if that person was not around, none of us would have left. And I'm like, well, and I'm out too. <laughs> I'm not sticking around. Um, so all those things kind of came together and, and, and then talking with, um, so my wife was in a Bible study last year. And when I left my job, she was, you know, kind of not worried, but just sort of like, we're taking a big leap of faith. Like we're coming out of not just my comfort zone. Like we really came out of my wife's comfort zone. And she was the one that said, just quit your job. Um, now in her mind, I was going right into another job somewhere and they were doing prayer requests in her Bible study group. And uh, the leader asked Liv, how are things? And she said, my husband just quit his job because of this. Um, he doesn't know quite where he's going next, but hopefully it's a short transition time. And, uh, so her leader put me in touch with her husband who put me in touch with three other guys who are all HR leaders in the DFW area. And it was almost like one of those, um, allegory books. Like I'm wrestling in my soul and three people just happen to come along and I have three conversations, one with each person that helps me move along just a bit more. And so, where we thought these conversations were going to open up doors to companies that were hiring for what I do uh, as uh, a corporate leadership development person, uh, what I got instead were three conversations that all independently led me to, you need to step out and pursue your dream. You're called to create. Um, read the, the first guy was like, read the book called to create the second guy referenced the book. I'm like, did you guys all do this in a Bible study together? Like, Oh no, I never met the other guy. 
I'm like what? <laughs> uh, so they all independently came across the same book. They all independently told me the same thing when they heard my story. Uh, and all three of them, their connection to the original guy, Jim, um, Oh, what was his last name? I forget his last name, but his first name was Jim was that he had helped each one of them figure out what they wanted to do in their lives, reimagine themselves and get to the things they really wanted to do. And then this was them paying it forward because he kind of mafia like said, Hey, talk to this guy, Jerry and help him along the way I helped you along. And, um, so I knew by the end of those three conversations, I had to, I had to jump out there, take a leap of faith and start my own company, BTR impact. And that was about as far as I, I knew that was the plan, like jump out, start a company. What's it going to do? I don't know yet. Uh, I'm writing a book. Uh, how are you going to make money? Don't know that either. I got like a bunch of ideas. And, uh, so in this, my daughter, she comes over, she was a business student for a while. Uh, my wife, uh, I thought it was an intervention. Like you need to look for a job, not pursue business. Uh, it turns out they just wanted to help me hone in on the 40 or 50 ideas that they thought I was having in the moment. And like, what is the plan? And, and yeah, we sat down and I said, this is what's on my heart. Uh, I want to be a keynote speaker talking specifically about living your best life. Um, now chances are companies aren't going to pay for that. So it's going to be really geared towards something that they're struggling with in their business. So that's how I landed to where I am now. Um, so from there, keynote speaking to workshops and they're like, so what else? And I'm like, and I got this coaching plan, like this group coaching plan. And I drew it out for them, but I kind of don't want to do that. And I put it away. Uh, and I, I mapped it all out and I even mapped out like how far will our savings take us uh, to give my wife peace of mind and share with her our plan. And here's the weird, funny thing was, um, I gave her like a three month, like I told her we could have one really good month and right back to work. Like one, like spin it all <laughs> really good month, um, or just make Christmas really good. And then back to work, or we can stretch it out about three months and still live a bit lavishly. Uh, or we could stretch it out to about six months, not a whole lot of cutbacks, uh, or, you know, we can really stretch it out to a year. Like we got stuff coming in, we got enough savings. And if we play our cards right, we could probably go a whole year, uh, but we'd have to dip into some other reserves. And she's like, no, let's not do that. Let's, let's go with the six month plan. Um, so we were aiming for that, but oddly enough, it looks like we're on the one year plan after all. <laughs> and, uh, but it's like, I'm not even worried. It's like, wow, we, we, we were provided for, for this transition. You know, I, I shared earlier, things are starting to pick up steam and, and like, I could see the momentum happening. I could see the conversations happening. Uh, there's so much more clarity now than I had 10 months ago. And where I had something like 14 or 15 different directions, like my website used to have 15 different workshop offerings. Uh, now there's only one. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't even have the coaching thing on there, but that, that whole group mastermind thing that Chris is working on you and I with for our various, mm -hmm. um, reasons, um, that mastermind group, I have drawn and redrawn on my whiteboard, on notes, one note on notes on my Apple device on paper there's at least three or four journals that have that coaching plan on there. Everything from the funnel to the journey to how long it's going to last, what's it going to charge 
And what's next after that? I just draw it, redraw it, redraw it. And every month I put it back. I'm like, I don't want to do that. And I put it away. Um, and then I saw Chris do a webinar and I was like, huh. And I pulled that back. I don't even pull it out. I just redraw the whole thing again in detail. And uh, then I see the guy two weeks later and I'm like, Hey, I remember you. <laughs> um, and then he said, look, if it keeps coming back to you, it, you probably need to do this. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I know better too. I've, I've experienced that a lot in my life. So yeah, we're going. Well, it's, I think that's the power of having a different perspective. Like you talked about Jim, Jim provided you other men who could give you insight into yeah. something that you didn't have. Chris is doing that same thing. You know, he's able to come and, and speak a truth to you where you like in our own lives, we can be confused, unsure, have that, you know, 14, 15 plan idea like you were talking about. And it takes somebody else who has a different perspective to just come along and go, Hey, those are all great, but why don't we focus here? Yeah. And they're, their expertise, like, I mean, we want to make sure that they're, they're like a Chris or a Jim and somebody that's trustworthy, that's vetted and not just be like, Hey, I just met you on the street or in the airport. Like, what do you think of this? You want to make sure that it's somebody trustworthy, that you're getting that guidance and that input from, but you know, you and I have both put ourselves in places where it's like, yes, you're trustworthy. I vetted you let me share my situation and asking for that input. And for me, like that's a game changer. Cause that wasn't something that I did before. It was like, that was a sign of weakness. And it's like, who the heck wants to be a weak or, you know, a failure. It's like, Nope. It, it just absolutely changes it. The thing that I want to, to bounce over to is, you know, kind of going through, it's like, Jerry, this hasn't always been where, you know, it's like you've talked about having this community of men around you, right. That are investing in you and being open to their guidance and having your family, that cohesion, um, you know, you thought it was an intervention. It's not, you know, they're coming alongside you to go, all right, what are we doing? Um, that hasn't always been like what you've experienced. And oftentimes we'll look at somebody that it's like, oh yeah, Jerry sounds like he's, he's crushing it. He's, he's in a place I want. And we think you just came through it with a silver spoon that it's always been this way. Um, but you and I have talked about it and it's like, um, I think you were 11 at the time when your parents got their divorce. Mm -hmm. Can we go back to that time and kind of like what was going on? Where were you at? And kind of, how you process through things. Yeah. Um, so my whole life up to the age of 11, <laughs> uh, the short version is my dad was in the military. He was in the army and, uh, he met my mom when he was stationed in Thailand during the Vietnam war. And so that they met, they got married a couple of years later, they had me a couple of years after that, they had my brother uh, and we lived around the world. Like, you know, we lived in Germany, we lived in Oklahoma of all places, uh, to Japan and then a little tiny out in the middle of nowhere post called Hunter Liggett, Fort Hunter Liggett. Uh, if you've ever seen, um, 
uh, what was it? The, the clear and present danger was the movie yeah. with uh, Harrison Ford. There's a scene where they're testing out the sniper to see if he's worthy of being a sniper. That's Fort Hunter Liggett. That's all you can see everywhere. Like there's a trailer park and then there's nothing. <laughs> and so we're there. Uh, my dad gets orders to go to Germany. For some reason, the army didn't put us, his family on those orders. So he had to go ahead. Then he had to get the orders amended and then come back and get us. Mm-hmm. And it turns out there was like a shortage for housing and all that. So in the two months that it took him to be able to get his orders amended and not his fault. I mean, there's bureaucracy like crazy in the old army and still in the new, I guess. Um, and so in that time, a helicopter pilot, another soldier who was stationed Ford Hunter Liggett for temporary duty on a training exercise. He had just seen the movie Top Gun and he and his buddies decided, Hey, we're going to be like Maverick and goose. And we're going to have a bet here, like on the premises kind of thing. But it wasn't so much on the premises as it was, who is it in here that we can kind of break up? Like uh, who's that sucker we're going to go after. And they saw my mom who was tending bar in the officer's club. And they said her, and she's got a ring on her finger. And he's like, look, and so basically what they did was they all bet a paycheck. Um, and this all came out later on, like as my dad was investigating it and trying to get answers and try to stop what was going on. Uh, we all learned a lot about the guy who was behind breaking up, you know, my mom and dad, uh, because, you know, even though he just got a slap on the, on the hand, like they knew, like, <laughs> they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's this guy. Oh man, there's things we wish we could do to him, but he's an officer and we're all enlisted guys and, uh, that kind of thing. But anyway, yeah, they basically bet a paycheck. There was like five or six of them. And one guy, uh, went after her and started convincing her of all her insecurities. Like, Hey, you know, we should hang out sometime. Oh no, I'm married. Oh, well, yeah, that that's okay though. We could be friends. And, uh, well, no, my husband, you know, he's, he's working to get us over there. And he's like, well, your husband probably do the same thing I'm doing because that's what we do. We're soldiers. And, um, and just like played off of her fears. So my mom for many, many years, if not still to this day, believed that my dad truly was out there cheating on her. Therefore it was okay for her to cheat on him. And the reality was my dad was not cheating on her. Um, and so, yeah, my mom pulls us aside one day, my brother and I, my dad's still in Germany and says, Hey, uh, you and your brother, you guys are going to go with your dad to Germany. I'm going to stay here and, and, uh, work on my education. And she, she still hadn't had like a GED. She had come over from Thailand. And, uh, and so I'm like, you know, my mom was strict. So for me, it was like freedom. I'm like, yes, bachelor pad. I don't get spanked every day for any dumb thing. Uh, my brother started crying though. So my brother was a little bit more aware at nine years old than I was at 11. And, uh, my dad comes, he's on a mission to try to save his marriage. But at the same time, he has a short window to get back to Germany with us, uh, because of his orders. So we do eventually wind up in Germany, just the three of us, my brother, myself, my dad, um, you know, we, we got picked up by a certain first class Moss, who was my dad's platoon sergeant. Uh, and then that night, uh, or the next night anyway, we were in our apartment. We just got groceries. We're having our first dinner in our apartment. And, uh, while we're making sandwiches, I hear my brother scream, like, dad, stop. And I look up, my dad's holding a knife to his chest. And, uh, and, and then it just hits me like, wow, my dad is not okay. And, uh, I'm, my brother or myself or both of us basically told him, hey, 
put the knife down and, and he, he never put it down, but he let go of it enough that we were able to take it from him. And then, um, he sobbed, he cried. He, he just said he had nothing to live for. And we said, Hey, you got us. And, um, and so that seemed to calm him down for the night. And we immediately took every sharp object in the home, every knife, every fork, put it into a bucket. Uh, I don't know where my brother found the tape, but he taped the heck out of that bucket. Like there was no getting in there unless you had a knife, but all the knives were in the bucket. And so, uh, and then he took the bucket and he hid it somewhere in the building. Like this was an apartment building that had a basement. Uh, he didn't put it in our storage unit. He found a place and he just hid this bucket of knives and forks. Uh, I remember the next day, my dad asking, Hey, where are all the knives and forks? And we're like, Oh, we got spoons. That's all we have dad. And, um, if we're going to have anything sharp, we're going to have to have plastic. That's it. You know, only plastic knives, plastic forks. And so we, we ate off of plastic for a while. Um, but that was really for the next two to three months was my dad attempting suicide. We're trying to go to school. Uh, I'm in fifth grade. My brother's in third grade. We're trying to wrap up the school year. And at the same time, we're worried about, did dad get to work? Is dad going to make it home? Is dad going to be like trying to overdose when we walk in the door? And, and so we found ourselves creating this plan of, you know, in the morning, dad, Hey, before we go to school, we know it only takes you so many minutes to get to work and we're going to call. And if you don't answer, we know that your boss is just one digit away. So we'll just call your boss and tell him what's going on. And, um, and he tried to, you know, threaten us back. Like, you know, if anything happens to me though, you wind up going to your mom and you know, the, like that's the whole reason why we're keeping the secret. And, and we're like, yeah, we know, but I mean, you're no good to us dead <laughs> and we don't want you dead. Uh, so we're helping you if you can help us. And, and so yeah, he, he abided by that. He'd, he'd get to work, answer our call. He'd do his work and we'd expect him to call before he came home. And we knew how much time it took for him to get home. And if we didn't get that call, we would call the equivalent of the emergency number for, for us over there. And, for the most part, it seemed like we were going to make it like, okay, he gets the occasional bout of attempting suicide, but for the most part, we'll have like four or five days where he's not doing anything. Uh, but we we're just always on, on watch. And, and one day, uh, he did manage to get a rope around his neck and hang himself off a closet door. And I was the one who found him. Now I was in fifth grade, barely a hundred pounds. And this guy, you know, five, eight, five, nine, weighed a lot more than that. And I couldn't lift him. And I, I remember shouting out, you know, please God, no. And the rope snaps, uh, but I hear him grunt. I thought he died. Uh, I run outside to grab my brother. He's out playing. So we were taking turns who got to be a kid. And um, when my brother got in and saw my dad, my dad was, he was breathing and uh, you know, again, sobbing, he said he regretted it. The moment he was hanging, he, he regretted it. And he, he's so grateful that he didn't die. And he's so sorry. He won't put us through that anymore. And, um, you know, by then though, we were kind of like, we were grateful he was alive, but also mad. Like, Hey, we trusted you and you knew all the mm -hmm. rules, like no closed doors. You closed them anyway. Um, so we were, we were still upset about that. And, um, but I guess for our blessing, you know, that rope, left a mark on his neck that uh, because of army uniform standards, he could not hide at all. So he had to go to work the next day with a red mark on his neck and his boss saw it. Sergeant Moss, he saw it and he's like, Hey, Sergeant Dugan, what is, what is that? Uh, he goes, Oh, I just, you know, cut myself shaving. And he's like, Sergeant Dugan. <laughs> <laughs> That's indicative of a, a different kind of line, right? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, I'm older than you. I know that's not what, 
cutting yourself shaving looks like. And then he asked him a series of questions. Uh, my dad, I guess, tried to dodge the questions. And then um, Sergeant Moss just picked up the phone and he called us. Um, I guess deep down he knew we were at home and I answered the phone. I don't know why. I, I think because I thought my dad would call. Like no one else had ever called us during the summer. It had to be my dad. And so I pick up the phone. This is before caller ID. And it's Sergeant Moss. And I look at my brother like, oh, shoot. Because we were like, like I was old enough to stay home alone, but my brother was not old enough to stay with me. He had to be with an adult babysitter at that time, officially under Army regulations. So that was my oh, poop moment um, because I answer the phone and it's my dad's boss. He's a military policeman. Therefore, he's the law. <laughs> and We're in trouble. I messed up. And he goes out and he asks right away, hey, is your dad? trying to hurt himself and um and i say nothing i'm like i i don't know if he's trying to hurt himself or not uh he seems fine so i'm still trying to keep the charade up even though he point blank asked the very thing like my dad went to work with a red mark on his neck like like he knows like he works with my dad um and the next thing he said was very pivotal and he, he just said hey jerry we care about your dad very much here and uh we know that you're worried about being separated from your dad, but I, I assure you, we want to help him. We want to make sure you stay with your dad. Uh, but for that to happen, we need to know from you, is he trying to hurt himself? Because if he is, I can get him the help, but that's up to you to say, I'm not going to pressure you. It's up to you. And he gave me the room to say it. And I just, I broke down crying. I said, yes, he's been trying. He's like, how long, uh, since the day we got here in country. And I don't, that's as far as we know. I don't know if it's been going on before that, um, but I think he knew because my dad did have antidepressants and so on before we got picked up uh, by my dad. So uh, that was it. Within 30 minutes, Sergeant Moss, an escort, and my dad were back at the apartment. We had 10 minutes to pack our stuff, uh, just clothing in our bags. My dad also had only so many minutes to get his stuff, and um, all three of us plus these two soldiers took us to the nearest clinic. We got screened medically and then that was it. My dad was then separated and sent off to get the care he needed uh, right then and there. And then we met our foster parents uh, and that was scary. Cause I mean, up to this point in the movies, in the books, your foster parents are always just crooks trying to game the system. And that's what we we're expecting. We're like, I thought you were caring for us. And uh, Sergeant Moss is like, believe me, we know of this couple. We've sent plenty of kids more than we needed to, to this couple and you're in good hands. You'll still, you'll reunite with your dad. And, and he's like, believe me. And, and I did. And the O'Neill family was like the greatest family dynamic we'd ever experienced. Like this family prayed together for dinner. Uh, they ate, all their meals they could. It was summertime. They ate all their meals together, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, the siblings, when they had a disagreement, they talked things out. They were our age and they would talk things out. Whereas my brother and I would fight like fists and nails and kicks and bites. And they would put us in something called timeout. And we're like, what is this? We would usually just get spanked and sent to our room to cry. Um, like, no, we're, we're building our, our kids up to be respectful adults and contributors to society. And we want to do that. And if we do that for them, we also want to do that for you. Um, but for that to work, you have to sit in timeout for five minutes. And your brother is going to be in timeout as well, but he's going to be in that room over there. So you two don't fight each other while you calm down. 
And, and then after that, we'll talk. And I was like, this is so weird. <laughs> um, but I was so grateful for it. Like it was the first time that the answer wasn't just being spanked or, you know, more anger or more pain. Um, and that we lived with them for about a month, month and a half. And then we got reunited with my dad, escorted back to the States. My dad got further care there while my brother and I lived with an aunt and uncle. And then finally reunited with my dad, moved to California. And so that was, a good six month window about, um, started sixth grade in New Jersey, finished new, uh, sixth grade in California at, at a different school. So, um, sixth grade, probably my worst year as far as school goes. It was just, you know, one, one nightmarish area to another, uh, cause it's middle school. You know, it's like yeah. middle school by itself is hard, but middle school on top of all that was, was tougher. And you and your brother had to grow up really quick. Oh, yeah. In that kind of environment, I'm like, a nine and 11 year old shouldn't be watching us as parents in that kind of environment. I mean, that's, that's something where it's like, yep, just put steroids on my childhood and (laughs) I'm automatically an adult, you know, I'm having to make adult decisions and hide sharp objects and protect my dad from himself. I mean, that's medical labels on pill bottles. Um, you know, it's like, Hey, wait, this has one every 12 hours, dad, not five, put four back in please. Uh, yeah. you know, things like that. And I like having to hold somebody accountable, uh, while he's trying to, to lie to you to get away with something. It was, uh, yeah, I don't recommend it for kids. <laughs> it's not the way to go. Um, definitely not. Yeah. And, you know, statistically, you know, most kids who go through something like that, they're broken. They, they take on drugs, alcohol, um, unhealthy sexual behaviors and so on. And, uh, I was the oddball to come out of that. Like I, I didn't come out undamaged. Uh, I'll tell you that, but, um, I didn't take on these negative coping behaviors. And I think that's where I feel like I was blessed. You know, it's, I think I carry a different kind of weight on my shoulders <laughs> for some weird reason. Um, and, and so we're back in California. My dad is with his family, his side of the family. So my grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and you would think, okay, we made it. Oh, um, except I think there were two or three other uncles also going through a divorce and it was just the perfect storm of how like hurt people hurt people. So you've got three, I think it was three, um, if I'm doing the math right at least three, maybe a fourth, uh, where the uncles were just, they're all depressed all at the same time. Like it, it really wasn't a healthy environment for my dad looking back on it because you got my grandpa who's like, Mr. Tough as nails. You suck it up. You drive on when I was your age, we didn't have any issues like this. Like he was not the most supportive guy when it came to mental health care. Um, it, there was a big stigma for him. Hospitals were a stigma. Um, to him, this was all my mom's fault. And, Every time he saw myself or my brother, he saw my mom. Um, and, and so it wasn't exactly a welcoming experience for my brother and I, although, Hey, Bruce, come on in. Good to see you again. My, my dad. Um, so from 11 to 14, uh, you know, where my dad was getting his healing and getting his support, um, I'm getting bullied by my extended family. So I got like at least one cousin, his best buddy across the street. And one of the uncles calling me racial slurs, like gook, half breed, mm-hmm. boat person, chink, nip. You know, you know, those were the names I was getting from my extended family. And, and I thought, man, 
how do I fight back on this? Well, I mean, they're clearly idiots. So let me just correct them on their racial slurs. Um, since my mom's from Thailand, I was, I just took it as an opportunity to educate them. Like, well, nip would be something you would call somebody from Japan. Uh, we're from way further South in Thailand and I'm actually more West in, in a place you call Oklahoma, I think. So, um, not exactly a boat person, how I arrived, but I mean, if that makes sense to you, then yeah, you show me the boat and I'll, I'll accept that. And like, Oh, you're being this smarty pants. And, and so a lot of fighting from 11 to 14 years old. I didn't win a whole lot of them, but, uh, I did hear them say later on, like, you know what? He never won a fight, but man, it hurt to fight him afterwards. <laughs> like, um, and so by 14, though, I, I'd gotten into a fight with the, the uncle, um, went to hiding in the garage. And that's when my dad finally saw what was going on. Cause he went on a, a trip to go get some stuff from my grandpa comes back. Hey, where's one of my sons? And they all try to make it sound like I was the, the, the bad guy in all this. Like, Oh, he lost his mind. He kind of forgot where he was, forgot who he was. Um, and my dad just asked my brother, Hey, what happened? And my brother explained, like my brother finally like, uh, got back on his feet in a sense and said, this is what happened. Um, and my, my uncle actually came out and told on himself in a way, cause he thought what he did was mm -hmm. good. And he came out and he just kind of bragged about it to my dad. And my dad looked at him and said, you need to walk out of here right now. If you said you attacked my son and he's been telling me, you guys have been picking on him for years and I just never wanted to believe him because you're doing so many good things for me, but you need to walk out right now. And like my dad's Mr. Nice guy. I mean, he will turn the other cheek. Um, but in that moment, like there was, a, I, I heard it cause I'm, I'm just in the garage. I'm only like 10 feet away listening in on my hiding underneath a pile of clothes or something. Um, and just hearing that switch in his voice, like, Oh, I've never heard this guy mm -hmm. before. Oh, wow. There's a fire in this guy. He's that's my dad. That's my dad. Um, now, now I'm in hiding. I, I'm not just going to jump out like, Hey, here I am. It's like, uh, like I, I, I'm like wishing there was popcorn in this garage. Uh, I should have brought some snacks. This is getting good. Um, and now everybody scatters. It's like, find my son. I left him in your care. When I went to go to the store for you, you need to find my son. And he used some language that it was like foul language, but it was, it was pretty harsh. It was pretty stern and they all dispersed. My dad was still at the house and he was just sort of like, man what happened there? And he, he went into the garage and he, he cried. And, uh, and then I just said, Hey dad, I'm right here. And he's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I've been here the whole time, but I wasn't going to tell those guys. And, uh, he's like, well, grab your things. We, we don't have to stay here. And now he was still obligated to come to my grandpa's house every weekend or every other weekend. But at that point he was like, you're 14. You don't have to come up here anymore. Um, you don't have to acknowledge them if you don't want to. And, uh, Around that same time, I, you know, you know, Christmas was coming up. I had a, uh, my first job ever. This is eighth grade. My first job ever. I was, I was mowing a yard for this retiree, uh, still remember his name, JP Predmore. And I earned a whopping $20 a month. But one of these months, I took the $20, I went to the dollar store and I bought as many Christmas cards as I could get because at this point, it wasn't enough that I didn't have to hang out there anymore. Like it, it just dawned on me. Like 
I don't have to live in their misery. They, they're all miserable. They're all hurt. They want us all to be miserable together. And I'm looking around and I'm thinking there's gotta be more to life than this. Like these guys are depressed. They're going through a lot of stuff. They don't know how to express it. Um, I, I can't drown with them and I'm, I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to kill myself. Um, but I can look around and see my friends have a different life. They have a different vision for their lives. Um, the O'Neill family was like a different, like the more this went on with my family, the stronger the O'Neill family, uh, example stood out to me. And I thought, I want a family like that where the husband and wife are on the same page for everything, not because the husband forces it, but because they mutually work together. Like I was 11 and I observed that I went to raise kids where, yeah, they might argue, they might bicker, but they will never attack each other physically. Um, I want that kind of family. And I look at my friends and they enjoy going on Christmas vacation with their family. They want to go on a trip with their family. They're looking forward to these kinds of things. They want to go see their grandparents. Me, I'm like, I'd rather not. <laughs> and, uh, and so I found myself wanting this other type of life, not like I want their life, but I want whatever is better than where I am right now. And I remember writing on a vision, basically like my vision for my life. Uh, but I didn't write it down in a journal. I didn't write it down on a poster or a car. Like I wrote it down on Christmas cards, uh, one for every person in my family I could think of, or at least one for every family within the Dugan family. And it said, essentially, um, I want to change the direction of the family name and the family tree. Uh, I, I wanted to put a joke in there. I wanted to actually branch, but I was like, eh, too mean, too mean. <laughs> it's like, like, um, half of them won't get it anyway. I was like, I was like, I was still kind of mad. Like there's still a chip on my shoulder there. Uh, but I, I said, I wanted to change the direction of this family. I want to be able to walk in stores in our town and not be followed by security. Um, I want us to be able to send our kids off to college with the confidence that they're going to do well, that they're going to live a better life than us. Uh, I want to be the first to go to and graduate from college. And I want you all to be able to be proud of the Dugan name in, in your own way. And, and I signed it and put those in envelopes and I gave them out to everybody in the family, all handwritten. So it wasn't like I, we didn't have computers and printers. I guess we had them, but we didn't have them in our home. And so I had to handwrite all these and I, I gave them out. I think up to 20 of them and uh, half the family loved it. They were like, Oh man, way to go. Yes. Do this. We're right behind you. And the other half was like, who do you think you are? You're better than us. Come on now. Um, and I didn't care about that. It was just like, wow, you know, like here I am showing hope. And I, I said nothing in the card to degrade anybody in the family. But like my grandfather, for one, and, and a few others were like, who's this guy? Like, well, why is he better than us? Why does he think he's better than us? He's not better than us. And, you know, I could hear them grumbling about it because my grandparents had a small house. And it was like really the last time I went for a long time to my grandparents' house. And that was it. I just focused on me. Like, I want to go to college. So I got to focus on that. And, and I just like head down, made sure I got good grades it's in high school. Uh, I got involved in football. Uh really because I was a cute cheerleader and she seemed to like football players. And 
I needed to be on the football team for her to notice. Uh, but it turns out you had to be like a starting quarterback. I was like third string offensive guard. So I, I, it w- I made choices. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> now, if um, I remember correctly, like with those Christmas cards you sent out, there was still somebody that like, I don't remember exactly yeah. how much, how recent it was, but they still had it like years later. Right. Yes. Yeah. Just a few years ago, um, I was talking to my cousin Susie and she was just talking. We were catching up because I mean, it had been a good decade, decade and a half since we had talked to each other. And she had shared with me that, uh, she was always proud of me. So she was part of the family that was proud that I'd written this. And she had shared with me that she held onto the card because in her darkest days, she was able to look at that and say, I want that too. And she went for, I mean, she had it like, if you think I had it bad, I think she had it worse. Uh, and I won't get into her story because it's her story to tell. But she said that card inspired her to go back to school and become a certified nurse assistant. Mm-hmm. And for a good window, she had a nine to five healthcare job and she was a bona fide adult with a career. And, and, you know, now she's moved on and she does like arts and she has a, a bunch of different other uh, revenue streams for her that get her through. And, but it was that she said that card inspired her to go back to school and, um, and get there. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And I just reached out to her recently to see if she still had the card. She goes, Oh yeah, it's tucked away in a box. Um, I'll see if I can find it. And, and so she knows she has it. It's just a matter of like, where did she put the box and how deeply buried is it in all our other things? Uh, so it might be a while before I get the card or I didn't want the card. I just wanted a photo of it so I can see what I wrote exactly. But, um, it blew my mind though. Like I remember when I wrote that, my hope was people would hold on to it and do something with their own lives with it while I was doing something with my own life and, and to hear it from her firsthand, I didn't prompt her. I'd forgotten about the card until she brought it up. I was like, that's right. You know, I, I did write that thing out and, um, and I, I got it out there. And, and so that it, it just, yeah, it gets me choked up in a way when I, when I think about that and, you know, just how, again, I, I'd moved forward and forgotten about it, but it, it did do something for somebody. Yeah. I think it's amazing the way it's like a vision and a desire that you had when we share it can, encourage and impact others around us when we may just be like, nobody's going to care, but we don't know who is and isn't going to care until we actually share it. And I think that your story and, and the fact that she still had it or has it yeah, is proof of that. Now you and I have talked about other stuff and I want to make sure we get a chance to, to share it. Um, would you be open to joining me a second time, Jerry? to yeah. uh, kind of share some of the other stuff we talked about. Oh yeah. Yeah. We just Perfect. got started guys. <laughs> no, dude. I mean, it's like, it's one of those of you've gone through a lot where, you know, we step into those situations. We're forced to grow up, um, to leave our childhood sooner than, you know, would be normal, but it's like how it impacts us can be different between you and I and, you know, whomever and the fact of you realizing i want something else 
like this place is not where I want to go. This isn't where I want to continue. I mean, that's especially at that age, you know, being a teenager and going, yep, this is not the road. Thank you. I'll take the detour. Um, I think that's so crucial and it doesn't have to just be in your teens. It can be at any age that we notice those, those opportunities and those desires to make a switch. So it's like just you taking that initiative and the action behind it, I think speaks volumes. And I hope that, you know, others follow in their same, in that same suit, regardless of where they're at. Um, before we end here today, I do want to ask, Hey, how can men reach out and get in touch with you outside of the podcast? Yeah. Um, if you're interested in listening to the podcast itself, beyond the rut.com, uh, there I've got blog posts, podcast episodes, a bunch of other resources, uh, like a goal setting tool. Uh, but if you just want to reach out directly and say, I heard you on Mike Forrester's show, uh, info at beyond the rut.com. And, uh, yeah, just be patient because apparently I subscribe to a lot of newsletters and I have to unsubscribe, but I feel bad about doing it. So I got to get through all those to get to your email. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jerry, for coming and sharing um, both your journey and the insights. I really appreciate it, brother. My pleasure, man. I look forward to doing this again for part two. Yes. Thanks so much, my friend, for joining me on another episode. If you found the information within the show helpful, please leave a review on the platform you're listening to. It helps raise the show's visibility so other men can join us in breaking free. See you on the next episode. And remember to continue putting yourself out there. Have a great one.